Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and this is episode 167. And with me today is the other half of The Beauty Brains, Valerie. How's it going, Valerie? Buongiorno, Perry. I'm in Italy. How are you? Oh, I thought we were uh, changing the language of the show. <laughs> I, I'm good. <laughs> so Italy, that's, uh, that's, that's a big country. What part of Italy are you in there? I'm in northern Italy. Just one of the many places I go as a cosmetic chemist. Who knew that being a cosmetic chemist involves so much travel, huh? It can, depending on what you do. I happen to have a role where I have to visit different manufacturing facilities we have periodically. So I come to Italy quite often. All right. On today's episode, we got a big one today. Uh, we're going to be answering questions about uh, whether dermatologists recommended products are better, whether people should uh, wash their hair every day, um, how some of these home skin analyzing devices and whether they're worth it, and the difference between normal hair color and those all natural hair colors. Plus, we've got some beauty science stories. So... Uh, should we get right into the beauty science? Yeah, let's do it. Valerie, uh, you want to start off with the story that you picked uh, first? Yeah, so I subscribed to Cosmetic Business News, and one of the articles they just came out with today, I, I think today in Europe at any rate, it's a European publication, sure. they revealed from Mintel that Mintel thinks sub-zero waste is set to be the next big global beauty trend in 2019. So for those of you who don't know, Mintel is an organization that puts together trend analysis in the marketplace for a variety of industries, and one of them that they do is beauty. So you may see them predicting ingredient trends or consumer trends, but they're trends nonetheless. So sub-zero waste, that's like putting all our shampoo bottles in submarines and putting it under the ocean? What? <laughs> Oh, fairy, you rascal. Uh, no, basically they're saying um, in this article that uh, many consumers have concern about the environment and beauty brands need to have some sort of stance on sustainable packaging, which can mean a variety of things, which we'll get into. But they did speak to where a couple of brands are featuring these quote-unquote naked products, not for you when you're naked, but uh, where the product doesn't have any packaging. So for example, Lush, uh, we all know that really stinky soap shop in the mall. You know, I can't even walk past a Lush because the odor is so strong there. Oh, it's too much. It's, it's way too much. But they do have over 240 packaging-free products. So Mintel's basically saying that a lot of small brands are doing it and big beauty players must adopt new practices in order to catch up. It is an interesting development in uh, the cosmetic industry. Things things really haven't changed much since the, I don't know, when I get involved in the early 1990s. Wow, way back then. <laughs> but the packaging is, is I mean, it gets, it, the designs are kind of cooler, but as far as like recycling things, there hasn't been much movement on that in, in a couple decades. It's good to hear they're doing something. Yeah, well, at least that consumers are demanding something. And I think they're 
packaging will never go away. I mean, if you have a runny shampoo, you need something to put it in. And there are alternatives that don't have packaging, like these shampoos and pods. I think those are niche products. I don't know if any of our fans would ever use anything like that, but I, I just don't think that type of stuff will catch on. So brands will really will have to think of other ways to try to either minimize their waste, um, designing packaging, not intended for the landfill, but intended for somewhere else. So we'll see. Progress in the beauty industry. That's very cool. All right. Uh, I got a story here. Uh, I was uh, poking around the, the latest issue of cosmetics and toiletries. You know, this is one of the premier scientific trade journals for the cosmetic industry. But there is an article written by this PhD, Bart Heldreth, who also just happens to be the executive director of the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board, or CIR. Harry, yeah. I actually went to college with Bart Heldreth. He's an alumni of Kent State University with me. Get out of here, really? Yeah, I know him. Um, but I actually didn't interrupt you to tell you that. I wanted you to give me a second to drag our soapbox over here so we can climb up on it. I know I know what topic's coming up. Hang on. Go ahead, climb up. All righty, here, here we go. <laughs> so, yes, let's get on our soapbox now that we're perched here. Uh, boy, you, the world really does look a little different up here. I can Actually, I can see some birds up there. But anyway... <laughs> Let's talk about first the CIR, uh, Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board. is It's a group of PhD level scientists and uh, medical doctors. And they're also represented by so dermatologists, toxicologists, and consumer advocates. Uh, there's also an industry scientist on the group, but they are tasked with the job of reviewing the safety data of ingredients commonly used in cosmetics and giving recommendations for use levels. They're completely open about their methods and they publish in peer-reviewed scientific journals for anyone to read. And so this is where toxicology experts go to learn what's really safe or not. And this all brings me back to the story, which the headline of this story was the CIR conclusion, parabens are safe. Woo! That's right. I'll put a link in the show notes where you can go and look up uh, any kind of ingredients uh at the CIR to read a review of the actual safety data collected. Can you imagine that actual safety data? Real safety data, hard to believe. So I'm going to warn you, though, that if you go there, you're not going to find any red, yellow, or green icons with these arbitrary safety ratings because that's not really how science or toxicology works. Some topics really in science are just difficult, and they don't lend themselves to simplistic systems despite what uh, some NGO websites might suggest. You know, Valerie, this is actually why I'm bothered by the advice that I often hear people say, go do your own research. You, you, ever, you ever get that where people say, oh yeah, go do your own research? Yeah, and I don't mind to do that, but if I don't know um, about the topic or exactly what I'm looking for or how to piece the information together, I don't know that I'm coming to the right conclusion about anything. Yeah, because you know what? research done right is hard, right? This is why it takes multiple years of school to get a PhD in some topics. You know, just hopping on the internet and Googling a few websites 
that's not really research, right? The internet is filled with misleading and fake information, and unless you have an adequate background in the subject, plus a healthy dose of skepticism, plus a lot of time, you, you really have no way to sniff out what is the real information from the myriad of fake experts out there. There sure are a lot of fake experts. University of Google graduates. Exactly. Boy, oh boy. You could save a lot of money just doing that, right? <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, the fear marketers and scaremongers have pushed the ideas that parabens represent some kind of safety hazard. The clean beauty marketers avoid using parabens just because of this idea. But you know what? The idea is wrong. Parabens in cosmetics are safe. The latest article from the CIR proves it again. So here's what the researchers did. The researchers reviewed the safety data of all the parabens commonly used in cosmetics, and they've come to the overwhelming consensus that the available data fails to demonstrate risks relevant to cosmetic safety in the context of concentration of use. So now we have the CRR saying that parabens are safe, but there's another group in Europe, the SCCS, and they also came to the conclusion that parabens in cosmetics are safe. So yay for preserved cosmetics, huh? Yeah, and I do want to point out that these two research organizations are not affiliated with any governmental bodies. They're an independent group of researchers to remove any bias about the cosmetics industry. So for me, an unbiased opinion, I think that's one we can trust. Absolutely. And we can trust the... Uh, the barking dog in the background too, right? I know, I know. <laughs> so what kind of dog is that? It's a chihuahua, uh, the factory chihuahua. You know, that was one thing. When I was in Italy, I noticed that uh, uh, that's kind of a difference in Italy than well, at least where I'm from, the United States. People like to bring their dogs everywhere. <laughs> oh, yes, they do. Yeah, it's it's actually quite quaint. But you know what else is quite, quite quaint? Whether these uh, fear mongers and... NGOs are going to change their tactics about parabens. So do you think this new information about parabens is going to change anything? I don't think so. I think consumers already have the perception that parabens aren't safe. And despite all of the evidence coming out, I don't think we're going to be able to change their minds on this one, unfortunately. I guess the bottom line is parabens are excellent preservatives that have been thoroughly safety tested and they're really not something you as a consumer need to worry about or avoid and when you see a brand advertising that they don't contain parabens they're just using fear marketing to sell their products personally i don't think the alternative preservative systems are as safe or reliable as parabens but if you care about product safety you know i say don't avoid parabens Right, so we did get an anonymous question, Perry, about a girl who runs every day, and thus she washes her hair every day. You know, Valerie, I run every day. I don't think you run every day. No, no, I, I run every day. In fact, I'm on a streak. Today is my 3,666 day in a row of running. Oh, wow. How many years is that? That's over 10 years, right? I just had my 10-year anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking back, like, I don't think there's anything else, I mean, beyond breathing, that I've done every single day for the last 10 years. Guess how many days I've run in the last 10 years? Uh, 2,000? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, gosh. Well, I, I made the joke about you running every day because I actually think, don't you run, juggle, joggle every day? Isn't that what you do? Yes, juggling. Yes, every day I am also running. I'm also juggling, which is the currently the longest juggling streak in the world. So there you go. I got that going for me. So every day you run, you juggle. Yeah, yeah, I, I never miss. Very cool. Uh, that's a two for one, two, two records in one time frame. That's great. Exactly. And you know what else is great? If we could answer this question about whether washing your hair every day is bad. Yeah. So um, everyone has told this girl not to do it. And she tells them it's not acceptable for me to go to work with a head full of sweat. And so she really just wants to know, is it really that bad to wash your hair every day? Well, from a skin standpoint and hair standpoint, I'll address them separately. If you tend to sweat a lot and your hair and skin are super saturated, sweaty, oily, uh, you may, you may want to wash your hair every day to get that out of there. Um, if you don't have a lot of that, I don't know what the harm is in not washing it using a dry shampoo or or using uh, nothing and having it evaporate. I, I think it really depends what your propensity is to sweat Um, as far as whether or not you should be washing your scalp every day if you're running. Do you have any insight, Perry, from your your perspective? Yeah, it's more of a personal preference. I mean, from a health standpoint, um, unless you you get bugs, I don't think you have to wash your hair at all. I mean, it would kind of be gross or whatever, (laughs) but from a health standpoint, right? Yeah. But as far as washing your hair every day... Uh, Valerie, did you know that in, I I think it was 2005, I believe I had the most shampooed head in America. Oh, that's right. That's a fun fact. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, I I washed my my head 1,500 times that year. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's (laughs) what, three times a day, five times a day? I'm not good at math. (laughs) Somewhere between three and five times a day. Yeah. Well, see, I was working on a prototype for the uh, Tresemme shampoo. And we wanted to make like the best performing shampoo on the market. So we tested all of the all of the competitive products and home use testing and in lab testing. And so I, pr- I made dozens and dozens of prototypes and every prototype I would try it, just different ratios and things. And uh, I'm just proof positive that you really you can't wash your hair too much. Well, unless you color your hair, then you don't want to wash it too much because it uh, washing hair does strip color from it. Absolutely. Now, washing your hair, washing colored hair every day is probably not a good idea f- for the color, right? Exactly. And again, it depends on your hair type. Uh, washing your hair every day can strip the hair and cause what we call weathering of the hair fibers. So, well, how do you mean by weathering? Well, uh, weathering uh, meaning you you have your your hair and it's really healthy coming out of your head and as it's exposed to water, sunlight, meaning UV rays, oxygen, the fiber starts to age, it becomes damaged and there's really nothing you can do about the environmental exposure on your hair. So if you are washing your hair every day and you have, you know, a very cleansing shampoo that you're using or your hair type is just susceptible to being damaged by water, you may not want to wash your hair every day. But I think if you're washing your hair every day, you're getting your head wet every day and your hair looks good, who cares? Wash it every day. As long as you feel good, you look good. And I think the running every day is really a good idea too. 
Our next question comes to us from Michelle. Michelle says, uh, it seems that even dermatologists are selling beauty products and wrinkle aging treatments, both topical and surgical. It makes it harder to trust them and figure out what the science says in terms of long-term treatments. Is there something more effective about dermatologist products than the things that we get in the store? So you have any, you have any thoughts about dermatologist products? You use uh, dermatologist products? I do not use dermatologist products because I think they are expensive and I'm not really sure what they do to me. I try to read the signs while I'm waiting in the dermatologist's office, Yeah, but I, I still don't really understand how they benefit me, so I just don't buy them. Well, let's talk about dermatologist skin products. There are a ton of them, right? There's serums, cleansers, treatments, and I even saw this. There's this one called Sun Drops, which I think it's... Uh, like drops of SPF 50. Like, have you heard of sun drops? It's not extracts from the sun. No, no. I, I, I think it's really just like a, a serum eyedropper thing of just SPF 50 liquid. I don't know. It doesn't seem useful to me, but it's a dermatologist thing. Let's talk about these dermatologist developed products. I mean, on some level, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, dermatologists are presumably the ones who know the most about skin, uh, they study it in medical school. They treat people every day. So it should make sense that they are the ones who could create the best working skin products. Just because something makes sense, that doesn't mean that it's true. The reality is that formulating a skincare product requires a different skill set than treating skin conditions and diseases. First, to make skincare products, you need to know about the raw materials that go into making them, right? Raw materials, those are really something more that a chemist would learn. Doctors spend their time learning about diseases and the treatments of diseases. They don't spend a lot of time learning about, uh, you know, emollients or humectants or preservatives or the other things that you need to know about to create skincare products. And to that point, Perry, it's funny that you say that I actually met a dermatologist and I asked if she knew a lot about the cosmetics ingredients and she said, no. I just know what's popular. <laughs> right. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, it's just, it's hard to be an expert in multiple subjects. Now, the other, the other thing that you have to be able to do to make skincare products is that you need to know how to best mix those ingredients together. You know, you need to know about emulsification and thickeners and orders of addition. And this just isn't something that you learn out of the book. You actually have to go into a lab and make these things. You have to create prototypes and really dermatologists typically don't spend their time in labs making prototypes. Right, unless they're making the products, which they're not, and they're actually having cosmetic chemists like us make the products for them. Uh, you know, in fact, when the researchers, like dermatologist researchers, when they're testing the effect of ingredients on the skin, because that does happen, uh, the vehicle formula that they put the active ingredient, it, it's really like a secondary thought. They don't really focus on making a nice vehicle. They just say something that'll make it easy to deliver the ingredient to the skin. But the reality is people like skincare products that feel good to put on. You know, they, they don't really want products that feel crappy but work. So when you get a skincare product that you like, there is much more to developing it than the input from a dermatologist. People want formulas that not only work, but things that feel good, that smell good when you put them on. And this requires like consumer testing to see which variants of the formulas work better than others. And, you know, being a dermatologist doesn't really help much for this. So all this is to say that the products from dermatologists are 
probably perfectly fine, but don't expect them to be miracle products. They aren't inherently better than the standard skincare products, and really, if a miracle product could exist, that would probably be developed by some big brand who spent millions of dollars in yearly research money to, to make discoveries, and they hired dermatologists. It's not going to be some dermatologist in their office coming up with this great product. In fact, Perry, I did meet a dermatologist once and asked her how she recommended products for her clients. And she said she actually tends to recommend the big brands because they do spend so much money on research and they're also the ones who are the most regulated. So they're following all of the rules, the laws, doing their diligence in testing versus a small brand that maybe doesn't have those resources. So as a fail safe, she just recommends these big, big brands and they tend to perform well. That tends to be my recommendation on products too. I mean, you can try whatever you want, but if you're looking for safety and best value, you know, things from big brands is, is probably your best bet. Mm-hmm. We got another hair care question, don't we? Also an anonymous one. This reader and follower of Beauty Brains wants to know what the difference is between hair color and all natural hair color. And although you can't see me, I did put all natural in air quotes because that's what the asker of the question did. So I'm going to give you the five ingredients that make conventional, normal hair color work. This is hair color you can buy at the supermarket, have done by your salon professional, order online, normal everyday hair color. Sure. So you obviously need dyes. You need an alkalizer which is an ingredient like ammonia or MEA that creates this high pH environment. Got it. You need antioxidants because these dyes oxidize together to form a color. And you don't want that happening in the tube. You want that happening on your hair. You need hydrogen peroxide and you need hair. And most people laugh when I say that, but it's actually true. The, the reaction doesn't occur by itself. It happens uh, really fast once you get hair involved. Ah, I got it. Do you remember those five? So we got what? We got hair, we got hydrogen peroxide, we got a dye, we've got ammonia, and that fifth one, antioxidants, right? Antioxidants. It's a small one, but it's still pretty important. So hair color technology has relatively been the same since the 1860s when hydrogen peroxide was first used in commercial lightning products. And shortly after that, uh, PPD, the main hair dye, was discovered and then commercialized by L'Oreal about 45 years later. So, The peroxide actually has a, a couple of things that it does, right? It, it breaks down the color and builds up the color, right? Exactly. So it removes, helps remove the existing pigment from your hair. That's called melanin. And then it serves as a catalyst between the dyes. So when you look at the dyes by themselves, they are relatively colorless. If you squeeze a tube of hair color out, it's probably just cream colored or, or white. And once you mix the hydrogen peroxide in, it catalyzes the dyes to form a, a bigger molecule that has a color to it. It doesn't matter what company you are, where your hair color is sold, whether it's the supermarket or at the salon, those are the five ingredients you have to use to color hair. So when you look at air quote, natural hair color, uh, they're using that same technology. They don't have access to anything else. They're 
dyes don't come from mines. I once read that on an all natural hair color website. Um, I don't know what mines they're getting dyes <laughs> from, but I'd like to know where they are and go get some dyes myself. So those five things all appear on natural hair color boxes. When I was a kid, you know, we used, we used to do this. I don't know why, but I had blonde hair and I would uh, dip my head in Kool-Aid and it would turn my hair red, right? <laughs> Couldn't you just dye your hair with like fruit juices and stuff? Um, well, if you're talking natural f- fruit juices, the dyes are really large and it's hard for them to penetrate into the hair. Furthermore, that they don't tend to be light stable, so they go away quickly. Mm-hmm. Kool-Aid is a little different. I no kids who also did that when they were young, but I never had access to bleach, so I, I couldn't lighten my hair enough. But those use um, typically synthetic dyes that are generally recognized as safe to consume, but they can also stain the hair. So in terms of the all-natural, unless you're really using henna, like a plant extract from sure. henna, sure. or indigo or chamomile, there's really no such thing as natural hair color. We have to go back to the five things that create a reaction to color hair, and those don't necessarily come from natural sources. So the bottom line is that uh, natural colors are calling themselves natural, and they're not using henna or chamomile. They're just regular hair dyes. And if they are using those things, then the products aren't going to work very well. Exactly. They won't be as good. And, uh, you know, a trick, if you go into a natural food store that I won't name, and, and you look at all their natural hair color you'll see 98% natural on the box. And then you'll say, Valerie, you told me there's no such thing as a natural hair color. This one's 98% natural. Ask yourself what's in the other 2%. <laughs> That's always my general rule. That is a good rule. question. Well, my general rule is until someone proves there's something supernatural, everything is natural. Looks like we got time for one more question. This question actually came in from an email. Uh, Agnitska. You know, we have uh, listeners around the world, which is kind of cool, but it does make sometimes the names harder to pronounce. Yeah, where's she from? She did not say where she's from. So um, so she could be from America too, I guess. Uh, anyway, she writes, uh, first of all, let me thank you for all the useful information you share to help consumers make more informed decisions about cosmetic products. I have recently started listening to the Beauty Brains podcast, and they are so much fun and informative. Oh, thank you. I thought I would ask your opinion about moisture measuring devices for home use, such as the waste skin analyzer. The idea is to be able to quantify how well my moisturizer is doing a job, and that definitely appeals to me. But I am skeptical about the ability or precision of the gadget. Are there any ways to measure at home the moisture content of your skin? What do you think? And have you heard about these devices? Well, I have now, but have you heard of these devices, Valerie? Um, I have a little bit, but not too much. Um, I don't know how much hold they've gotten in the market yet. Since I didn't have one of these in front of me, I can't really give a completely thorough assessment, but I did go look and see what's published online, and there was a video showing how one of these things worked, and I think I got a pretty good sense of what this thing is. The bottom line is, this is really kind of a gimmick that's not going to be terrible, terribly helpful for anyone, and let me explain why. Now, I say this because uh, the sensor that they use in these devices is likely the same kind of sensor that is used for a skin measuring device that we use called a corneometer or a novameter. So those are the types of devices we, when you, when you want to support a claim in a cosmetic product, you say your, your product is moisturizing, you would do a study using a corneometer or a novameter to prove that claim. 
And these devices allow you to measure the percent skin moisture for making those claims. So whenever you see something like 200% more moisture, this device is used to support that claim. The problem with these claims is that these novameters and corneometers and these devices, in my experience, they are just not very reliable. You know, to support a claim, you have to control the temperature, the humidity, the, the temperature of your subject, and you have to test it on dozens of people over a few hours to get this average data set to, to make it re reproducible. So the information that you get from just one person in your study without controlled environmental conditions is pretty much worthless. And that's kind of the information that you're getting from these devices. It's not going to measure the amount of water that you've taken in. And in my view, what they've done is there's this nugget of real science and they've blown it up into this feel-good device that can give you numbers and shows up on a cute little app, but it's really not going to be a reliable way to measure the, the moisture of your skin. How does the device put out the information in, in a way that's meaningful to the consumer? So for me, I don't work in skincare, which pretty much as a person who uses skincare products makes me a consumer. I know a lot about ingredients and how they work and how claims are made, but for the most part, when it comes to this moisture content testing, I'm, I'm at the consumer level on it. So when I use this device and it puts out a piece of information, how do I know what that means? Well, that's a great question. Well, if you look at the video of this Wayskin product, they show you exactly how that works. You put the device on your skin and then it communicates with your phone and it has a phone app and it'll take a reading and it puts a number up on the phone app. And that number, I, I think that number is percent moisture. So it'll say 70% or 90% and, you know, closer to 100. I guess 100 means that you're in the shower or something like that. There has to be an easier way than stamping this device all over your face to tell you if you need moisturization on your skin or not. Well, that is a good point. I say a good way to know if you need moisturizing, if your skin feels dry, then apply more moisturizer. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the easiest way. All right, Valerie, look at the time there. It's uh, time for me to arrivederci. I don't know what that means. I'm just throwing it out there. I just hear people say it. <laughs> you know, whenever I travel to Italy, I, I often switch into Spanish. Like, I don't speak Spanish. I speak about 10 words, but somehow <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a terrible traveler. Yeah, they're both romance languages. <laughs> exactly. They're very, actually, they're very close, uh, but they're, they're, they're close enough where I think I know the language, but I don't know it at all. Mm -hmm. But I do know the wine. I hope you have wine with dinner tonight. Oh, me too. Well, Valerie, next week I'm going to see you, right? Yeah, we're going to the scientific seminar in New York City. Perfect time to be in New York in December. The 72nd Annual Society of Cosmetic Chemists uh, Annual Meeting. Yeah, that'll, it'll be great. Uh, uh, if For people that don't know, Valerie is normally in California. I'm in Illinois, so we are not together usually. Right now you're in Italy. Next week we'll be in New York, and uh, hopefully we'll get a time to record some stuff there. I look forward to doing a show live and in person 
Well, that brings us to the end of the show. And uh, as 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 I've gotten some feedback on the website, they said, "Hey, keep up with the be brainy about your beauty." But the, the ghost of Randy will not will not continue to haunt us. I'm just gonna say, thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for stopping by. Until next time. Kittens. <laughs>